Good evening. Uh, welcome. Uh, it's great to see all of you here. Um, before anyone knew the name Jerry Wenger or Richard Nelson or Phil Broussard, there was a shining light who came before them all, Dr. Ray Dameron. He started teaching physics back in 1964 when we were still located as a campus at St. Louis uh, through a generous grant that I received from Oxford University and from their SKIO program, we were able to start a new club last year. We named it in Ray's honor, the Ray Dameron Science and Theology Club. And this club is a forum for students and faculty to join in a conversation, to press into difficult questions at the interface of science and theology. We meet every two weeks, and it's one of the highlights of the semester. I mean, who wants to miss Dr. Petcher regaling us with stories about Kuiper or bizarre jokes involving subatomic particles in quantum physics? Don't want to miss it. The Dameron Club is sponsoring this evening's, evening's lecture. Informally, we're calling this our annual Ray Dameron le lecture series. We need all the help we can get in the area of science and religion. Unfortunately, this is an area with much polemic, so much heat and so little light. And many of these issues involve multiple disciplines, each with their own set of distinctive challenges. One of the biggest questions, of course, is how to relate God's word with what we're discovering out there in nature. How do the two relate? These are the kinds of questions that this lecture series is intended to help us engage. Science and theology is a very contested area of study. And partly, that has to do with the metaphysical assumptions that are brought into science. That's the false advertising that we're also familiar with. Scientism sold as genuine science. The intelligent design movement has been the whistleblower, challenging naturalistic and reductionistic understandings of science. And it is my honor this evening to introduce our speaker, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Dr. Meyer received his PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. He's a former geophysicist and college professor. In fact, the reason that he's got a smile on his face these days is because all three of his children graduated this year, one from high school and two from college. Hip, hip, hooray. He now directs the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. He's the author of a number of significant volumes, including the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design, and his earlier book, Signature in the Cell, DNA, and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, which was named a Book of the Year by the Times Literary Supplement in 2009. We actually, I think we still have copies out there for sale, uh, $10 each, better than Amazon Prime. In short, Dr. Meyer is the world's most significant thinker writing today on intelligent design. And within academia, the ID movement is controversial. There are many conflicting opinions about intelligent design, both pro and con. 
but it is fitting that Dr. Meyer is at the helm of the movement. He is an avid boxing fan. And in 2009, he was named by World Magazine Daniel of the Year. I think that means Dr. Meyer can handle controversy. And to be quite honest, a lot of that controversy is just rhetoric and noise. Once you get past those distractions, there's a deeper, more important conversation that we need to be involved in. And I'm delighted that Dr. Meyer can help us to get our bearings and to start thinking wisely about these matters. We're gonna have some time for Q&A after his talk. Um, and in addition to this evening, uh, he'll be speaking tomorrow in chapel at 11 a.m. You're all warmly invited. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Meyer. technical difficulties. <laughs> I taught at a college very much the same size as um, Covenant for years, Whitworth College in uh, Washington State, and that was in the 90s, and we still had VCRs back then, but I could never seem to operate them. And my, it was a, a course on this history of science and technology. My students thought it was hysterically funny that I couldn't operate the VCR, so <laughs> thank you for bearing with me here. Um, when when, when Darwin finished his great masterpiece, The Origin of Species, he thought he had explained every clue but one. And the clue that he knew he hadn't explained was an event in the history of life known as the Cambrian Explosion. Uh, the Cambrian Explosion is the geologically sudden appearance of most of the major groups of animals and the body plans that are represented by those groups. A body plan is a unique arrangement of body parts and tissues. And each unique body plan uh, exemplified a, a kind of uh, unique architecture, a unique way of putting together an animal. And this event in the history of life known as the Cambrian Explosion documents uh, well over half of all the body plans that have ever existed on Earth first arising in the fossil record. Now, Darwin knew about this event, and it troubled him because it didn't match the pattern of appearance that he expected to find in the fossil record. You may remember that part of Darwin's theory was the idea that uh, complicated animals, the first animals representing all these different body plans or architectures, would have arisen through a process of slow, gradual evolutionary change produced by the mechanism of natural selection acting on small incremental variations, which would be sifted by natural selection according to their survival value and allow organisms to change little by little by little. So he expected the pattern in the fossil record to reflect the outworkings of that process. And he, in fact, had depicted the history of life himself as a great branching tree in which the top part of the tree would represent all the forms of life we see today, 
and the connecting branches, those ancestral forms that would connect those modern forms all the way back to that first simple one-celled organism, the ancestor of all, the last universal common ancestor as it's known in evolutionary biology. The problem for Darwin that he encountered with the Cambrian explosion and, in truth, other similar events in the history of life, and the mic still seems just a bit hot to me. Um, when I was growing up, my mom realized I was probably destined to be a teacher, a professor of some kind, because she was always saying, Stephen, we're all right here. So I'm tempted to speak louder than I should. Anyway, the problem for Darwin, as he encountered the pattern in the fossil record, is specifically in relation to the origin of the first animals, is that instead of seeing a tree-like pattern as we see behind me, we see a pattern that's represented much more like a lawn or perhaps an orchard of separate trees in which the bases of each of those trees never quite connect. You have what are called parallel lines of descent. And so you have this tension between the Darwinian picture of the history of life as represented by the tree of life diagram on the bottom of the slide and the data as represented schematically, not exhaustively, by the little slide I have on the top. There's a tension there. The tension results from the absence of the ancestral precursors and intermediate forms that Darwin expected to be there as, again, the outworking of the process of natural selection acting on random variations over long periods of geological time. And so Darwin himself acknowledged this mystery right in The Origin of Species. He said, to the question, or as to the question we do not find, as to why we do not find rich fossiliferous deposits belonging to these assumed earliest periods prior to the Cambrian system, prior to the Cambrian period in geologic time, he says, I can give no satisfactory answer. Now, there's a number of things to note about this. I call this the mystery of the missing fossils. And it was a mystery that uh, in some ways haunted Darwin from the publication of The Origin in 1859 right until his death in 1882. But one of the things that I appreciate about Darwin and the way he put together The Origin of Species, he himself described the book as a one long argument for what he called descent, that pattern of universal common descent represented by the tree of life, with, by mo descent with modification, where natural selection and random variation would be the means of modifying organisms bit by bit by bit over long periods of time. One of the things I appreciate about him is he realized he was making an argument. He wasn't just making an assertion or claiming that his theory was uh, beyond question. He laid out his case for the theory and acknowledged the difficulties with the theory head-on. And he acknowledged this problem of the origin of the new forms of animal life and the pattern that he saw in the fossil record of, of discrete or sudden appearance with an absence of these intermediate forms that he expected to be there. Now, he, uh, this, um, what I like to term rhetorical modesty on Darwin's part, is a characteristic of his style of argumentation. Unfortunately, many of his modern defenders, I like to call them Darwin's public defenders, do not share his approach to science. They tend to be much more dogmatic and tend to make uh, absolutely categorical claims that are very difficult to justify once you get even a little bit into the scientific literature. 
In 2009, I had the opportunity to testify before the Texas State Board of Education. They were considering a rather innocuous policy proposal to encourage science teachers in the great state of Texas to weigh the strengths and weaknesses of competing scientific theories when they presented scientific theories in their science classrooms. The Darwin-only science education lobby turned out in force. They wanted to argue, as uh, Eugenie Scott here, the president of the National Center for Science Education, then president, argued, there are no weaknesses in the theory of evolution. And so, she argued, you can't apply this standard of pedagogical openness to the theory of evolution because the case for evolution is signed, sealed, and delivered. Now, I was about to testify and I presented in my testimony into evidence a hundred peer-reviewed scientific articles raising various problems with the contemporary, what's known as neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, the standard textbook theory that we all encounter in our biology textbooks. In other words, it happens out that in leading evolutionary, uh, leading evolutionary biologists writing in peer-reviewed technical journals are acknowledging very grave difficulties with the creative power of evolution, uh, the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism, and also difficulties with the tree of life picture of the history of life. So I knew full well there were plenty of weaknesses in the theory of evolution that could be discussed, and it seemed to be nothing but sweet reason to allow teachers or encourage teachers when they teach the theory of evolution to also inform their students about some of the criticisms of the theory that are appearing in peer-reviewed scientific literature. What's not to like? Well, many leading evolutionary biologists do not like this approach. And in fact, they go to the mat when they're speaking to the public about the uh, completely uncontroversial nature of the theory. This is Richard Dawkins. He says, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is either ignorant, stupid, or insane. And then he adds parenthetically, and I really like this, he says, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that, he says. Um, I thought that was kind of sporting of him not to consider the possibility that people who disagreed with him were wicked. Um, anyway, I find this way of arguing uh, very unscientific, and it's certainly very contrary to the way that Darwin approached his own subject and his own case. In The Origin of Species, writing about the mystery of the abrupt appearance of the first animal forms in the fossil record, Darwin again uh, expressed his doubt, not about the accuracy of his theory, but about its adequacy, its ability to explain all the evidence. And he said, the case at present must remain inexplicable and may be truly urged as a valid argument against the views here entertained. So he makes his best case, but he acknowledges that there are some outstanding problems, some pieces of evidence that his theory can't explain. Now, in the book, Darwin's Doubt, that I'm discussing tonight, I tell the story of this mystery, what I call the mystery of the missing fossils, and what's become of that mystery. Um, and I think it's a fascinating scientific story because it starts with this, this great masterpiece of Darwin, and a, and a, but an argument that's been going on since the 1860s as the great paleontologists in his day were already challenging him on this key piece of historical evidence. Now, Darwin was a smart guy and he had some ideas about how to solve the problem of the missing fossils. He proposed 
what is now known in paleontology as the artifact hypothesis. He said that the absence of these ancestral fossils in the strata, the sedimentary layers beneath the first appearance of the major animals was an artifact of either incomplete sampling of the fossil record, in other words, we haven't looked hard enough or, or wide enough yet for those fossils, or later paleontologists would claim it was an artifact of incomplete preservation. Maybe the sedimentary or the sediments represented in those sedimentary rocks weren't capable of preserving the ancestral animal forms. Maybe they were too small. Maybe they were too soft. And so this idea was introduced. But Darwin generally thought that as we had more discoveries, as paleontologists scoured the fossil record around the world, they would inevitably turn up these missing ancestral forms. And so he likened the, uh, the situation to that of a, of a great book where the pages of the book had been torn out and you were trying to make out the sense of the book and the story without miss, with, with myth, missing pages or missing chapters. He says, I look at the natural world, the natural geological record, as a history of the world imperfectly kept. And on this view, he says, the difficulties above, to the difficulty of the sudden appearance of these animal forms, uh, these difficulties are greatly diminished. That was his hope, that future fossil finds would fill in the gaps. Now, there have been a couple of great Cambrian fossil finds um, that have been made since Darwin's time. The first really famous one occurred in 1909, about 50 years after the publication of The Origin of Species. It occurred in, uh, in, in uh, Canada, in the Canadian Rockies, in a place now known as the Burgess Shale. The, the fossils were discovered by an American paleontologist named Charles Walcott. There's a great story that goes with the discovery. It may well be apocryphal, but it's still worth telling. Um, Professor Walcott from the Smithsonian was prospecting in the high Canadian Rockies. And he was uh, uh, near the end of the prospecting season. The snow was already starting to fall. Mrs. Wal Walcott, ever the dutiful wife, was sitting on the back of his mule as he was walking up these talus slopes looking for any evidence of, of, of fossilized life. The mule slipped and fell into the, 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 these shattered pieces of rock. And as he was lifting the rock off the, the, the horse's hooves, he turned over a beautiful hunk of shale that preserved a little dude like this. This guy is known as Morella Splendens. And here's an artist's depiction of the structure of this exquisite arthropod. Arthropods are animals with a hard exoskeleton. They would be nicely contrasted with chordates, which include the vertebrates, would have an internal skeleton. And this again gets to that body plan concept. Whether the, the, the hard structural material is on the outside of the body or the inside of the body is going to dictate a very different design logic in each case. Now, prior to this discovery, and during the 19th century, Darwin knew of the Cambrian explosion from a few very striking groups of animals. In one case, another type of arthropod called a trilobite, an iconic group. The, the, uh, the trilobites have these beautiful three lobes. And, um, and, uh, some, and by the way, this is extraordinary. I have, a, I have a trilobite fossil at home that has, the, they have compound eyes like insects. And some of the preservation of these uh, these trilobites at the Burgess Shale were so exquisite that you can actually see the cones in the compound eyes, indicating 
an exquisitely complex visual apparatus present from the very dawn of animal life. So if you think generally about the evolutionary approach, you attempt to explain complexity from simplicity as a result of the gradual accumulation of more and more complexity over time. And what, we, what these fossils reveal is exquisite complexity from the very dawn of, again, animal life. So Darwin knew about the Cambrian from these trilobites, from other creatures called brachiopods, which were bivalves, hard external shells. Um, and, uh, but at the Burgess, and this is the, the map showing the spot, the maple leaf for hockey in Canada, and uh, anyway, uh, wonderful finds. And this, what, was, what, what was discovered at the Burgess was a whole range of new forms of animal life that had not been known to Darwin. And so, in a way, not in truth, but at least from our perspective, the Cambrian explosion suddenly became more explosive because there were all these new forms of life that had been previously unknown, and each of those in turn turned out to lack ancestral precursors in the lower pre-Cambrian strata beneath the layers that preserved these new animal forms. So you had not just a few major groups, but a whole range of major groups that first come, come into the fossil record. And if you, you may have encountered the work of Stephen Jay Gould. He wrote a charming book years ago called, um, now the late Stephen Jay Gould, I think he died in 2002. Um, he was the great paleontologist from, from uh, Harvard. And um, he made famous all these extraordinary creatures that had been discovered by Walcott and subsequent paleontologists at Burgess because they were very odd, exquisite, um, exquisitely exotic creatures. This is another guy. He's also an arthropod called Waptia. I think I've got a little animation clip here. Oh, yeah, here. And uh, this is another dude that was discovered at the Burgess Shale. He's called Opabinia. He's got a long proboscis with five eyes and 30 segments in, his, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the body structure. Um, and Gould highlighted just how strange and uniquely configured all these different new forms of animal life were that were discovered at the Burgess Shale. I'm hoping the animation runs a little faster because there's another one coming up that's pretty cool. Um, this guy. Yeah, this is called Wewaxia. And he apparently ooched along the bottom of the seafloor. All these, by the way, are marine invertebrates that have been found at 7,000 uh, feet altitude or greater. Uh, I've had a chance to hike up there. It's a wonderful World Heritage hike if you can ever do it. They will take you right to the fossil quarry and it's just extraordinary, this, the, the stuff you can see. Anyway, a huge range of new animal forms discovered in the, in, the, uh, in, the Cambrian, in the Cambrian period at the Burgess Shale in 1909. More of these forms in animated form swimming by you. Uh, then in 1984, there was another big find. This is at the, in um, southern China. And this one was, if anything, more dramatic. And the, the, uh, the, this uh, set of fossils that were found by the Chinese paleontologists near the Chinese town of Chengjiang were highlighted in a Time magazine cover story because they again caused us to realize that this event known as the Cambrian explosion was even more explosive, even more dramatic than we realized. And these finds highlighted this for two reasons. First, there was a, again a whole range of new animals that had been discovered that were, were never known before. They've now even discovered fish 
in this earliest Cambrian fossil seam, previously fish had only been known from the much later Devonian period. And so the, the explosiveness of this event was quite striking. They also were able to recalibrate the radiometric dating of the, the sedimentary layers that encased these fossils. And the, the time period involved shrunk from uh, about 80 to previously with the Burgess to about 40 to finally in, in, the, to, in about the 10 million year window with a very important 5 to 6 million year window in which 13 to 16 new body plans suddenly emerge. Now, I've spoken to some of the paleontologists that have been there and they said, this is a small seam of rock, five, six feet thick. And you want to say, well, five to six million years, well, that's still a long period of time geologically. Well, geologically speaking, it's a blink of the eye in relation to the standard geological time scale of four and a half billion year old Earth. But it turns out that it's also biologically a blink of the eye. It's a biologically sudden appearance because there's a branch of, of uh, biology known as population genetics that allows scientists, evolutionary biologists, to calculate how much evolutionary change we would expect to take place in a given amount of time if we know things like the mutation rate in the DNA, the, the generation time from parents to offspring, the, the, and the size of the populations. And when you make calculations based on population genetics methods uh, or, or population genet genetics models, the waiting times, as they're called, for significant evolutionary time just explode into big exponential numbers. And five to six million years is a blink of the eye in relationship to how fast the mutation natural selection mechanism, which is the, the, the mechanism that is thought to provide the creative power in the Darwinian scheme, uh, how fast that really is. Five to six million years is not nearly enough time to generate significant morphological innovation, innovation in the form of an animal uh, or an animal body plan. So when Time Magazine picked up this story in 1995-96, they called this new find in, in southern China evolution's big bang. And one of the paleontologists there said, what I like to, in, quoted in the article, he says, what I like to ask my evolutionary biology friends is this, how much faster does this have to happen before we stop calling it evolution? It's very abrupt, very sudden. It looks in, in um, uh, it looks like almost a creation event. Now, in uh, 2001, we had the opportunity at Discovery Institute to host one of the leading Chinese paleontologists who had been at the forefront of these discoveries. His name is J.Y. Chen, and when he came, uh, we had a big audience at the University of Washington where we hosted the, the lecture. It's the big secular research university in our city. And the lecture was extremely well attended because Chen not only was by that time very well known from the Time Magazine article and his scientific publications, but he also let it be known that he would be bringing fossil samples. And everybody loves fossils, at least geologists and paleontologists and evolutionary biologists. And anyway, we had a good turnout at the University of Washington. Chen gave a fascinating lecture and he talked about some of the strange and exotic animal forms that had been discovered each of which, was, or many of which, were exemplifying new body plans. This is the, uh, the, the top of the food chain predator in the Cambrian Seas. This guy's called Anomalocaris. He's about a meter uh, long and had an arthropod, but very unique uh, body plan. Uh, hyaliths, uh, 
it was a, it's a kind of conical shell with an attached lid. Uh, several different kinds of worms with unique body structures. This one is called a foronidid. It's got, it's got a feeding organ called a lophifer and then a little worm inside a tube. Um, another kind of worm called an analid with little bristles for um, locomotion. It's segmented, uh, an interesting structure. This guy is, looks almost like a plant. It's got a little petal-like uh, feeding bowl. And, uh, but the, the scientists determined from closely examining it that it was more likely to be an animal, but they didn't know how to classify it because it was so unusual, so unlike any other animal form they discovered, so they just called it a problematica. <laughs> That's how science is done, folks. Yeah. <clears throat> and this, this is another form he talked about. I love this because we have these in Puget Sound. I'm, I'm from Seattle. They're comb jellies. And uh, by standard geologic dating, the Cambrian explosion is, is, begins about 530 million years ago. And we have these exact same the comb jellies were discovered in this Cambrian seam. And uh, we have the identical forms floating around in Puget Sound. And so you have 530 million years of what paleontologists like Stephen Jay Gould called stasis. No directional change in the form of the organism. No, in a sense, significant evolution of any kind over a long period of time. Um, this was not yet known. It was uh, th this fish fossil was found in 2009 after Dr. Chen gave his lecture. But it's also extraordinary because again, what you're seeing is is a, an incre a breadth of of animal forms that were unknown to Darwin that have made us aware that the Cambrian explosion was much more explosive than we, we realized. Far uh, more forms in a shorter period of time, in a geologically and biologically short period of time. Now, at the lecture, and I'm just going to back up to the slides to go back to Professor Chen, he, he, he closed the lecture by describing the challenge that these fossils posed to the Darwinian picture of life. And he held up his hand and used it as a visual aid. And he said that the, these fossil discoveries turn Darwin's tree of life upside down. And then he elaborated on that point. And he said, in the Darwinian theory, we expect that, that new forms of life would emerge very gradually, and they would differentiate from each other very gradually as big differences in form would take a long time to arise as a result of small incremental variations that were preserved by natural selection. So we would expect little differences in form to add up to finally big differences in form. But he said the striking thing about the, pale the paleontological record is the big differences in animal form, the difference between, say, a fish with an internal skeleton and an arthropod with a hard exoskeleton, those big differences are dramatic and present from the very first appearance of these animals. And he called, and this is in paleontology, it's called the inverted cone of diversity. Diversity refers to small changes, disparity refers to big differences in form, and the paleontology shows the big differences are present right from the beginning. Disparity precedes diversity, the opposite of what you'd expect. Now, when uh, Chen made this point and started to elaborate, you could feel the tension in the room start to rise. He was a leading paleontologist. Some people were calling him the Chinese Stephen Jay Gould or the Chinese Simon Conway Morris. And here he was in Seattle saying that this new world-famous fossil find was challenging Darwinism. There was some uncomfortable shuffling of feet. Then at the end of the lecture, one of the University of Washington scientists, geologists as I recall, raised his hand and said, Professor Chen, that was a very... Um, very interesting lecture. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for bringing the fossils. Uh, but I do have one question for you. Aren't you um, 
a little uneasy, challenging Darwinian evolution coming as you do from such an authoritarian country. And then it got really tense in the room because not only had Chen questioned Darwinism, now one of the UW professors was now insulting China. And Chen, however, nobody's fool, got a wry smile on his face and he said, well, in China, he said, we can question Darwinism, just not the government. <laughs> he said, but in the United States, you can question the government, but you can't question Darwinism, he said. And then there quite a discussion broke out. Um, so this is actually the Wall Street Journal ended up writing up this encounter. There was an article about it a couple years later. And it's, um, it's, it's very telling because, of course, uh, Chen was in part saying, I've heard about the political correctness in your universities. Whose country is more free, really? So it was a, there was a political subtext to all that, obviously. Anyway, this is the... The, the status of the, the missing fossil problem today. It's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. New fossil finds have made the problem that Darwin acknowledged in the origin of species more acute. There have been some attempts to solve it, and um, they, I, I discuss them in the book in a lot more detail. The short story is they haven't solved the problem, but we can come back to that in the Q&A if you'd like. I'd like to get on to what, in a way, is a more fundamental in, and, I think, uh, interesting mystery. And this isn't just the mystery of where are all those missing ancestral fossils. It's not just a, a, a paleontology mystery. It's an engineering mystery. It's really, a, it, 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 it's the mystery of how would the evolutionary process, I have an awful lot of cord dangling from me here. I'm going to see if I can tuck it out of my way. I hope that's not distracting to you all. Uh, it sure is to me. Um, it's the mystery of how would the evolutionary process build these animals? Not only because they appear so abruptly, but also because of everything we've learned about what it would take to build a complex animals, an animal in the years since Darwin developed his theory. I, I love this slide because it really depicts the essence of the problem uh, paleontologically and, as I'm going to argue, from an engineering standpoint. Here are these complex animal forms. They appear abruptly in the fossil record. You have the sedimentary column on the right with the layers of rock. You have the, the animals, a few of the animals that arise in the Cambrian depicted on the slide. You have the standard uh, geologic time scale and millions of years on the left. And by, by the way, I know there are probably in this audience different views about the age of the earth. And um, for, I, I have a view on that, which I tend not to try to make a big deal of one way or another. I, I assume for the sake of argument, at least in the book, the, these, uh, the, the great age of the earth and the, time, the standard time scale. And uh, what's interesting about this is not so much the exact number you put on that age, but the pattern that you see in the fossil record. And this deeper engineering problem, which is in a sense age neutral. How do you build these complex forms of life? That question has become very much more acute as well because of something we have learned, because of things, many things we've learned in fields such as molecular and cell biology since the 1950s and 60s. This whole molecular biological revolution, as it's called, starts with Francis Crick and James Watson investigating the structure of the DNA molecule and some colleagues in a parallel line of research looking at the structure of proteins, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But Watson and Crick in 1953, as you probably remember from 
biology textbooks elucidate the structure of the famed DNA molecule. They realize it has a beautiful double helix shape or structure on the inside of which are four different uh, chemical subunits that arise in alternating patterns. And these are called nucleotide bases. Now, in 1953, uh, Francis Crick elaborates this thesis even more and proposes something he calls the sequence hypothesis. And what he proposes is that these nucleotide bases, and my animator has represented them with the letters A, T, G, and C, as chemists today represent those chemical subunits. And he posits, Crick posits, that these nucleotide bases are functioning just like alphabetic letters in a written text or the digital characters that we now use today in computer code, like zeros and ones. In other words, the, it's the arrangement of these chemical subunits that allows the DNA molecule to store and transmit information. Information for what? Information, and Crick is already anticipating this in 1957, he thinks that the information stored in DNA is being used by the cell to construct the, the important protein molecules. Um, proteins, and I'm just, I'm looking through the audience just to get a, any sense I can about the extent to which we're a mixed audience of humanities and science people. How many, are there many science people? Okay, and how many humanities people? Okay, so let me just do a quick shtick on proteins and apologies to the people who have already had chemistry and biochemistry in classes like that. Proteins are the toolbox of the, they're the, they're the tools of the cell. They do all the important jobs. They process information on the DNA molecule. They catalyze at uh, rates much higher than would otherwise take place. All the important biochemical reactions that keep your cells working, they're part, that, that are part of our uh, processes of metabolism. They also build structural parts of, of larger, they, they, build, they are the parts of larger structures and of little tiny molecular machines that biochemists and molecular biologists are discovering. So proteins are like the tools in a toolbox. They do all the important jobs in the cell. And just as it, in a toolbox you have a, a hammer or a saw or a wrench, and each of the jobs that those different tools can do is related to the shape of the, of the tool, in the same way the, the three-dimensional shape of the proteins determines the kind of job it can do in the cell. So I've got a quick visual uh, aid here. These are, uh, someone's laughing. It is funny because I stole these from my kids years ago and they never got them back. And uh, on the box it said ages two to four, they're all now in counseling. Um, so, <laughs> daddy took my toys. Okay, so proteins are made of smaller subunits called amino acids. They exert forces on each other and depending upon the arrangement of the amino acids, those forces will ca cause the chain to fold into different three-dimensional structures or shapes. They're called folds, okay? So these, the, the, the particular shape that is adopted by any given amino acid chain will determine whether the protein A can do a job at all or not, and secondly, what kind of job it can do. So some proteins will have just the right shape so they can break apart other molecules or pull molecules together and cause them to react, or build a molecular machine, or whatever. So, that's what, so the proteins do a job in virtue of their three-dimensional shape. They acquire the three-dimensional shape in virtue of the arrangement of the smaller subunits called amino acids. There are 20 of them, or now they say 22. 
And, um, but that raises a big question. What tells the cell how to arrange the amino acids so that the chain folds right so it can do a job? That's where the DNA comes in. And this is what Crick anticipated all the way back to 1957, four years after the, dis the discovery of the structure of DNA, he's figured out that it's a, not, not only does it carry information, he's got an inkling about what the information does, and he realizes that those four chemicals along the spine are literally functioning like alphabetic characters in a message. Okay? So this is the, this is the kind of breakthrough, stop-press moment in modern biology when we realize we're not dealing with just matter and energy, not just chemistry and physics, we're actually dealing with an information-carrying molecule. We've got digital code. In fact, our leading uh, biotech guy in Seattle, Leroy Hood, just says, DNA contains digital code. That's what it is. That's what it does. And that information is crucial for building all these important things. Now, I've kind of gone far afield from discussing Cambrian animals, so what's the connection? What's this got to do with um, I've got a little animation we could show later if we like. What's this got to do with, with the problem of the Cambrian explosion? Well, simply this. Let me ask a rhetorical question. That may be a better way in. If you want to give your computer a new function, what do you have to give it? You can answer my rhetorical questions. It's college, right? A program or new information or Software or code or okay, right, right. You got to get so it turns out the same thing is true in life, and that's the huge engineering problem to which I referred. If you want to build a new form of uh, of life from, if you want to build the first life from simpler pre-existing chemicals, the chemicals have to be arranged into an information-rich molecule, namely DNA, that will build you proteins. So you got to get from chemistry to code. And if you want to build a new form of life from a simpler pre-existing form of life, you need lots of new proteins in order to service the new types of cells that would be represented by the new form of life. So when you look at those Cambrian animals, like a trilobite, for example, or a fish, they're going to have a lot more different types of cells than the, than, than the earliest forms of life that are on the planet. They have different cell types. And each new type of cell requires new dedicated proteins to, to service those cells. So if you suddenly have a, a digestive tract in an animal, then those, those cells involved in the digestive tract are going to need digestive enzymes. Enzymes are types of proteins. Proteins need information to be built. The information is stored in DNA. So when you see a big explosion of new biological forms, such as we see in the Cambrian explosion and other places in the fossil record, we're not just looking at an explosion of new animal life, we're looking at an explosion of information. And that raises the really fundamental question that's interested me and a lot of the other proponents of intelligent design, and that is, where does this information come from? What produces it? Now, the, the standard Darwinian explanation is that <clears throat> you have um, pre-existing genetic information in the DNA molecule. The origin of the first information is not really explained. It's something most Darwinian biologists just presuppose because we really don't have anything like a satisfactory explanation for the origin of the very first life, and we need information for that as well. So most modern neo-Darwinian biologists just start with posit some simple form of life with genes that make proteins. And then the story from there unfolds. 
there are random changes to the information in the DNA molecule called mutations. If those mutations happen to be advantageous to the survival of the organism, maybe they build a new kind of protein, then they'll be passed on and preserved because of their advantageous value for, in the struggle for survival. And those little changes add up over long periods of time to become big changes and eventually you've got new forms of animal life. Now we've already looked at the problem of the abrupt appearance of the fossils and that they don't really seem to fit with that kind of story. But there's another problem and that has arisen because of the recognition that DNA is functioning as digital code. Any programmers in the audience? Okay. If you've got a section of your software and you want uh, and, and suddenly someone starts randomly changing the zeros and ones, are you more likely to degrade the information that you have already or to generate a new program or operating system? The, uh, if, yeah, you get, what do we call them, glitches you know, or worse, yeah. Okay, so here's the problem. In any uh, in any communication system in which you have alphabetic, typographic, or digital characters, the ways of arranging those characters that will result in a functional or meaningful outcome is minuscule in, com minuscule in comparison. Thank you, bad pronunciation. Okay, it's minuscule in comparison to all the other ways you could arrange them that will go wrong. In other words, there are vastly more ways of getting gibberish than there are of getting meaning, okay? So in other words, there's the reason why it's almost inevitable that if you start arrange, rearranging your code, you're going you're to degrade the code, okay? You're going to lose information. You can do this with Scrabble letters on your Scrabble board or, you know, it's the monkey at the typewriter example as well. But if you start with inf an informational sequence, which would be equivalent to a gene, a gene is a, a functional sequence of ACs, Gs, and Ts, and DNA, and you start randomly changing those ACs and Gs and Ts, you're going to, it would seem, based on our understanding of how uh, communication systems work, it would seem that you're going to degrade that information. That mutations are not going to be a good way of generating new information, they're going to be a good way of degrading the information you already have. Now this doubt was first expressed by a group of mathematically uh, astute scientists from MIT in 1966 and 67. They, they got into an, a, a discussion with their biology colleagues at a picnic and the biologists were explaining how the mutation selection thing works and about all of the new discoveries in modern molecular biology, the, the Watson and Crick revolution. And the physicists and the computer engineers and the mathematicians who were at this picnic started to challenge them. They said, look, if DNA is what you say, if it's really a, a communication system that stores information in a digital form, then we don't quite see how it's going to work to try to generate new functional information via a random shuffling process that you call mutation. We don't get that. And one of those computer engineers who in the end helped call this conference to order was named Murray Eden. And this is what he said, no currently existing formal language can tolerate random changes in the symbol sequences um, which express its meaning. Meaning is almost invariably destroyed. And this was the, this was the intuition. There's something wrong with this Darwinian story. Random changes to digital code destroy code. They don't generate new functional code.
Now, it turns out that there's a mathematical reason for this that's precise, and I've already alluded to it. The ways of going wrong vastly outnumber the ways there are of going right, the ways of arranging things. But we can get a handle on this with a simple example like a bike lock. Four digits, four dials, ten digits on each dial. That means that there are how many possibilities? Ten plus ten plus ten plus ten, right? Okay, I'm, I'm playing games, right? Okay, it's ten times ten times ten times ten. The reason locks work is that there's a lot more ways to go wrong than right. There were only 40 possibilities. You could easily shuffle through them, right? But there's 10,000 possibilities on the average bike lock, okay? Just the two, first two dials, 10, 10 possibilities on one, but each one of those 10 possibilities can combine with each one of the other 10 possibilities on the next dial. So that's going to give you 100 possibilities right there. And then the numbers just grow exponentially. So imagine outside our auditorium tonight, we have a nice racing bike locked up with one of these devices. But we also have a thief. Surely no one from the Covenant College student body. Some interloper who uh, decides he's more interested in stealing a bike than hearing my lecture. And he starts fiddling with the dials. Let me ask you a question. Is it more likely that he will succeed in opening the lock or that he will fail? Is that it, the random search mechanism would be Let's call that the chance hypothesis. Is the chance hypothesis more likely to be true or false? Is he more likely to succeed or fail in opening the lock? Okay, thank you. It's another trick question, isn't it? To answer that question, we need to know how many opportunities he has to sample the lock, sample the combinations. Because there's 10,000 combinations. If he's got enough time to sample 5,001, then the answer to my question is he's more likely to succeed than fail, right? So we need to know not only how improbable it is that the lock would be opened on one trial or one opportunity, we need to know how many opportunities there are, are going to be, okay? So I, I was bored one night and made a calculation, and it turns out that if the thief uh, does nothing but sample combinations, one every 10 seconds in about, what, oh, I did, what did this? I think I did this. I think it turned out to be 15 hours. He would eventually, eventually get, get, and I, don't quote me on this, I've forgotten my own illustration. Anyway, there's a certain point where he's going to get it done, right? Um, now, and I have a little an animation of our poor thief trying, 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 trying. He's trying to sample the lock. Okay, now let's change the thought experiment just a little bit. What if the thief encounters an, a, a lock like this? Okay, now... Um, Oh, yes, I do remember. 15 hours, he'd get, he, would, he would get to, to five, a little over 5,000 combinations. Okay? But what if, what if the thief encounters a 10-dial lock with 10 digits on each dial? Now he doesn't have 10 to the 4th power possibilities. Now he's got 10 to the 10 power possibilities, which is 10 billion possible combinations. So same thought experiment. If he spends, um, if he spends his whole life doing nothing but sampling combinations, no potty breaks, no sleep, no study, no anything, and gets one new combination every 10 seconds, in 100 years, the thief will sample 3% of the total number of possibilities. So if I ask my same question again, the answer is different now. Is it more likely that the thief will succeed or fail given those conditions? 
well, it's more likely that he'll fail. So if you're betting person on whether he's going to succeed or not, the chance hypothesis is more likely to be false than true. Do you see that? Okay. So now, where am I going with all this? What's this got to do with biology? Well, it turns out that biology, and there's the thief at it for 100 years, okay? Turns out, can you see that, that biological systems, these big macro molecules, are kind, they are kind of like bike locks in a sense. They're, they are literally combinatorial systems. A combinatorial system is just a system where there's a lot of combinations of possibilities, okay? So if there are 20 different protein-forming amino acids, then if you've got a chain of amino acids, say, 150 amino acids long, and that's just a very short protein molecule, average length would be 300, some are in the thousands, um, you've got 20 to the, in this case, 150 po power possible ways of ranging those amino acids, okay? So you've got a lot of different possibilities to search. So the question we want to ask is when we're talking with DNA, which is also, you could think of that as a, a lock with four digits at each dial, and the protein system is a lock with 20 digits at each dial, the question is, does the random search mechanism of random mutation and natural selection have enough opportunities to generate a new gene or protein, a new sequence of, of functional information in the time available on, uh, to, to, on planet Earth? You, is you following me? Okay, it's, it's, in other words, is the DNA protein situation more like the first case where the lock was small enough to be sampled in a reasonable amount of time? Or is it more like the second case where there ain't near enough time available, where it exceeds the, what the mathematicians call probabilistic resources? 100 years wasn't nearly enough time to sample 50% in my second lock case. Well, the, the short answer to this story is that 4 billion years is not enough time to sample the number of combinations that are represented by uh, even a modest-length protein molecule. I have a colleague, Douglas Axe, who now works with us, who was formerly at Caltech and then Cambridge, who spent 14 years asking a very important question, which was, how rare or common are the functional sequences among all the possibilities? What he was essentially trying to answer was, is a protein molecule more like lock number one or lock number two? And his answer was, it's, he determined this experimentally, it's much more like lock number two, only much worse. Instead of the ratio of one over 10 billion, which was lock number two, the ratio of functional to non-functional combinations, in an actual short protein, the ratio is one over 10 to the 77th power. That's very, very, well, it's a little tiny needle in a great big haystack, okay? And then even if you take into account how much time there's been on Earth, it turns out there's not enough time to search a space this large. There have only been 10 to the 40th organisms in the history of life on Earth. So if each organism generates a new DNA sequence, which might produce a new protein molecule in the best case, you're still only going to produce 10 to the 40th possible new sequences, but 10 to the 40th over 10 to the 77 is... 1 over 10 to the 37, which is 1 10 trillion trillion trillionth. That's what the fraction is. So I'm going to change the metaphor just a little bit. Imagine a great big haystack the size of Lookout Mountain, and then imagine that you only get to sample 1 10 trillion trillion trillionth of it looking for 
one little pebble. could be anywhere on the mountain, but you're restricted. You only get to look here, and the mountain is yay big, okay? That's the kind of problem. It's the, probabilistically, it's overwhelmingly, more, it's overwhelmingly more likely that a random mutation natural selection search would fail to find even one new protein molecule and one new DNA, DNA molecule for building it in the entire history of life on the planet. In other words, it's more, the hypothesis is much more likely to be false than true. With odds like that, if you're a betting person, it's, it's much more likely that it ain't going to happen. All right? So what this means is that, mu that the standard Darwinian mechanism, the thing that allegedly gives the theory its creative power, the mechanism its creative power, is not capable of generating the new information that's needed to build new Cambrian animals. Not even one gene or protein in the time of life on Earth. And that's one of the reasons that neo-Darwinism is in serious, serious trouble in mainstream evolutionary biology today. Now, in my book, I, by, by the way, you guys following is a little bit of a complicated form of uh, mathematical reasoning, but if you keep the bike locks in mind, I think you, you got the key, the key issue. It's not like the four-dial lock where you've got 15 hours to search. It's much worse than the 10-dial lock where you've got 100 years to search. It's, it's 10 to the 77, it's a 77-dial lock where you've only got 10 to the 40th opportunities to search that, which means really tiny, really tiny, tiny part of the possibilities will ever get sampled, which means you're more likely to fail than true, or more likely to fail than succeed, which means the hypothesis that that's how it's happened, that that's how new information was generated, is more likely to be false than true. Now, there are a number of other problems that I address in my book that are, in some ways, even more fundamental. Um, it turns out to build an animal, you don't need just one gene or protein. You need networks of genes and proteins that have been mapped out by developmental biologists, and these networks are called developmental gene regulatory networks. If you look at the functional relationships between, it's, in other words, this whole, the, the way it works is you've got a gene that turns on a protein, a protein that turns on one part of the genome, and then that part of the genome builds another protein which either turns off or turns on another part of the genome and all these proteins are being made at exactly the right time to service the new cells as the, as the animal is developing. It's an exquisitely complicated process and as the developmental biologists, the people who study how animals develop from embryo to adult form, have mapped out these functional relationships between the genes and the signaling molecules they produce, they've realized that, that what we're dealing with is a form of circuitry. And this is one of the, the, the diagrams from one of the, these uh, uh, cutting-edge scientists who are working on this problem. It's, it's under the heading, again, of how do you build an animal. You don't just need a gene, a protein. You need networks of genes and proteins that are coordinating the differentiation of different cells at the right time. It's like a marching band. It's just exquisitely choreographed. Beautiful. Well, here's, a, here's another interesting problem that's arisen. As they studied these networks of genes called gene regulatory networks, these circuits, the scientists have realized that you cannot perturb the core elements of these circuits without shutting down the animal's development. In other words, without killing the animal as it's going from embryo to adult form. Once an animal dies, it no longer participates in the evolutionary process. No more change, no more nothing. It's dead, okay? But the scientists have also realized that building animals requires 
a gene regulatory network. So if you've got animal A over here, and it's built with its gene regulatory network A prime here, and you realize you want to build animal B from animal A, that means you've got to get a new developmental gene regulatory network. So you need to get gene regulatory network B prime over here. But the one thing we know experimentally is you can't alter these gene regulatory networks, these circuits, without stopping animal development, killing the animal, stopping the evolutionary process. So it's a huge conundrum. How do you get from point A to point B? If point A represents a complex circuit that can't be altered without destroying animal development. So another deep and profound problem that has arisen. It's an information problem, but it's also it's an engineering problem again, a circuitry. Engineers may know a, a principle. It's called the constraints principle in engineering. The more tightly integrated a system, the more difficult it is to perturb the system without defect to the whole. And the bio, these biological systems are tightly functionally integrated. Lots of parts that function, that function in close coordination, and they do not lend themselves to evolution, to significant change without destruction of the animal form. Okay, a couple other deep and profound problems like this that I address in the book, but I want to get back to my story. And, um, and for, there'll be some more discussion maybe, uh, in, we can discuss more in the Q&A, but I want to give you a little sense of what's going on in evolutionary biology today. I looked at just two problems in, with the, the creative power of the mechanism. In the book, I, I look at four, four really fundamental problems, and you can read about the other two. But these problems are now being recognized by leading people, not just in science, not just in biology, but in the specific discipline of evolutionary biology. And next month in uh, London, there's going to be a major conference at the Royal Society, which is the oldest and still arguably most prestigious scientific society in the world. And the, the conference is being organized by a group of scientists who are sometimes known as the Third Way. They're also known sometimes as the Altenburg 16 uh, because they held a conference in the town of Altenburg on the continent. But they are evolutionary biologists, mainstream people who have completely rejected the theory of neo-Darwinian evolution that relies on the mechanism of mutation and natural selection. They think the that, that mechanism has very limited creative power. It cannot account for big innovations in biological form, such as we see in the Cambrian explosion, and they have been calling openly for a new theory of evolution. Now, in my book, Darwin's Doubt, I look at a number of the new theories that have been proposed in order to try to solve the problems that neo-Darwinism doesn't. In short, here's what I found. Each of these theories have some uh, advantages over the textbook theory of neo-Darwinism, the theory we all learn in our biology classes. But they each also fail in the most fundamental problem uh, facing evolutionary biology, which is to explain the origin of the information that's needed to build a new, a new animal life. Let me illustrate with just one of those theories. The last one is called natural genetic engineering. And in some ways, it's the most interesting, and certainly to me personally. It's been championed by a really uh, interesting and um, uh, uh, just an extraordinary scientist. His name is James Shapiro, University of Chicago. Shapiro has been studying the way in which organisms respond to different environmental stressors. And he's found that far from being random, those mutations that we do see taking place frequently in organisms or animals are occurring 
as a result of some kind of pre-programmed adaptive capacity, which is under a kind of what he calls algorithmic control. It's like there's a, a master program inside the organism or inside the cell saying, hey, if this contingency arises, if it gets too cold or too hot or this predator comes on the scene or if I'm poked this way or that way, I'm going to produce a different set of proteins and that will trigger response, maybe some proteins that will allow me more insulation for a very cold winter or something. And, um, and so these, the, there's a kind of if-then subroutine that's governing what kinds of changes do and don't take place within the organism. In other words, those mutations that take place that we observe aren't random at all. They're not random with respect to survival value. They are dictated by the needs of the organism according to some pre-programmed adaptive capacity. Really interesting corrective to the Darwinian uh, view of biology. But there's one question in all this. It's a more accurate description of what's going on, I think, in biology. But there's one question that Shapiro doesn't ever address. And that's the question of, well, where does the programming come from? And we've actually had some conversations with him, one of my colleagues, Paul Nelson. And uh, Nelson says, well, that's the question. He, Shapiro was saying, I really don't get your intelligent design thing. And Nelson asked him, well, where does the programming come from? He says, I don't think about that very much. And Paul says, well, that's what we're thinking about, okay? And, now I, and from that, I, I do want to introduce this, the, the idea of intelligent design. I want to tell you about my involvement with it. I was um, first exposed to the concept of intelligent design in 1980, well, I won't tell you how far back it was, 1986, 1985, I met a scientist named Charles Thaxton. Um, he had just written a book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, which was not about the topic of the Cambrian explosion, but it was about the origin of the very first life. And theories of the first life are sometimes called theories of chemical evolution. And Thaxton critiqued all of these theories with two co-authors and showed that they all had a, they had a bunch of problems, but the most fundamental problem was, again, they couldn't account for the information you needed to build a cell. And he suggested in the epilogue uh, to this book that maybe what we were looking at was not something that could be explained by undirected chemical processes or random variations or, or laws of physics, but maybe we were looking at something that needed an intelligent cause to be explained. And the reason he, he this was for him a kind of a strong intuition. He said that, that information in our experience is a kind of a mind product. It's something that comes from conscious agents. So maybe when we find information at the foundation of life, we're looking at something that's pointing us to an intelligent cause, is the way he put it. He didn't use the term intelligent design at that point. Anyway, I was a young scientist, and I met Thaxon at a conference that year, and he kind of took me under his wing and kind of mentored me, and I was fascinated by the argument of his book, and I'd been working in, um, in the oil industry doing something called digital signal processing, which was an early kind of information technology, and I thought, this is cool. If the fundamental mystery of life, the origin of life, is actually an information problem, that, was, that absolutely fascinated me. So I really got into this, and I, a year later I was off to England for grad school, and I had a burning question in the back of my mind. And that was, could Charles Thaxton's intuition about the connection between information and intelligence be developed as a rigorous scientific argument? Could the design hypothesis, if you will, be formulated as a scientific theory? And ironically, the person who helped me think this through most was Charles Darwin. I began in my studies to read The Origin of Species, others, other great works of historical science, 
and I discovered that Darwin was using a unique method of scientific reasoning. He couldn't go back and look at what actually happened to produce all those trilobites or the first cell from the prebiotic soup. So historical scientists have to reason backwards. They have to look at the clues that are in front of them and then propose various hypotheses and then see which one of those hypotheses best comports with our knowledge, in particular our knowledge of cause and effect. Darwin had a principle, he called it the vera causa or true cause principle. Let me illustrate. If you go to eastern Washington today, where I went to college at Little Whitworth College, a college similar to, to Covenant, um, and you go out into beyond the city of Spokane and out into the farmlands called the Palouse Country, you'll see all these nice windswept sediments, and every once in a while you'll see a, a patch of white powdery stuff. And if you weren't around on May 18, 1980, um, you will have to use the historical scientific method. And you'll say to yourself, okay, what caused this strange phenomenon, these piles of white powdery stuff? Maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was a flood. This is called the method of multiple competing hypotheses. Maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was a flood. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a volcanic eruption. Maybe it was a rainstorm. Which of those four hypotheses is best, according to this Darwin's principle? Well, Darwin said that one that's best is the one that invokes a cause which is known to produce the effect in question. He got this principle from his mentor, also named Charles, the great geologist Charles Lyell. Lyell said that when we're trying to figure out what happened long ago in the past, we should be looking for causes that are known in the present to be in operation. So I didn't get to see what produced the ash, but I do know something about cause and effect. And when I, oh, did I say ash? Anyone know about the Mount St. Helens eruption, May 18, 1980? That was my college graduation day, okay? So I remember it very well. So I wouldn't have to use the historical scientific method to figure this out. But if I hadn't been there, I would. And as I look at those different hypotheses, well, which is best? Volcanic eruption, rainstorm, earthquake, or flood? Well, volcanic eruption, because we've seen volcanoes produce white powdery stuff. We don't see floods or rainstorms or earthquakes do that. So based on our knowledge of cause and effect, we can eliminate some of the hypotheses and we elect the one remaining one. If we're lucky, if there's only one known cause, we can make a pretty decisive inference that that cause must have been in play, okay? And that was Darwin's method of reasoning. Now one day as I was studying this, and I am wrapping up, I came across an, a work on the application of information theory to molecular biology, to DNA. And it was a fascinating work, a short mathematical treatise, but the, the author said, in passing, the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. In other words, conscious activity is a cause now in operation for the production of information. And for me, a light just went on. In other words, what I realized is that by using Darwin's own method of scientific reasoning, we could make a very solid scientific inference to what's called an inference to the best explanation, to intelligent design. Why? Well, consider this. Bill Gates says DNA is like a computer program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. What do we know about what it takes to generate the code in a software program? Well, if you trace it back to its source, ultimately you come to a mind, right? Not a material process. In fact, whenever we see information, whether it's in a 
hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of code in a software program, and we trace that information back to its ultimate source, we always come to a conscious agent, not just a material process. And so the discovery of information at the foundation of life and the evidence of big infusions of new information during the history of life, I have argued, is best explained by reference to an intelligent cause, by reference to a conscious intelligent agency, rather than an undirected material process such as Darwinian mutation and selection. Um, and that's, that's, in a sense, the structure of the argument for intelligent design. Now, some of these other phenomena we've been looking at, like these gene regulatory networks, also play into this argument because what do we know about the origin of circuitry? Again, it's the product of intelligence rather than an undirected pro process. We know of only one cause that produces complex, functionally integrated circuitry. That causes intelligence. So when we find a circuit, a circuit or, a or a section of digital code in a cell, the origin of which we could not observe, the best explanation is that those attributes too, those attributes also were produced by an intelligent agency. Now, one final point, which is how has this argument been received by the mainstream scientific community? I've gone further than those third-way people who are saying, hey, we need to critique Neo-Darwinism and come up with a new theory of evolution. I've proposed a new theory of biological origins that breaks with the materialistic conventions of evolutionary biology and says we've got to look at intelligence or mind as a possible causal explanation. Well, my book Darwin's Doubt was reviewed in Science in the fall after it was released, the fall of 2013. And it was reviewed by one of the top Cambrian paleontologists in the country and a leading evolutionary biology, uh, a leading evolutionary theorist as well. His name is Charles, Charles Marshall. And Marshall, for one of the first times, correctly distilled the thesis of my book. He represented it accurately, and for that I was very grateful. Some of the earlier reviews had been very um, frivolous. And he says this, he says, Meyer's case depends upon the claim that the origin of new animal body plans requires vast amounts of no novel genetic information. Correct, I did claim that. In fact, he says, however, he's disagreeing, our present understanding of morphogenesis, that means body plan building, indicates that new animals, new phyla, were not made by new genes, but largely emerged through the rewiring of the gene regulatory networks of already existing genes. Okay, you don't need to be, I, I, when I got this critique, I could not have been more thrilled. You don't need to be a PhD in biology to see what's going on here. Anyone? He's begging the question, what is a gene? It's a stretch of DNA that contains functional information. A gene regulatory network is a whole network of genes which contain functional information. So he says you don't need new information to, be, need new, to build new animals. All you've got to do is rewire the pre-existing genetic regulatory networks that act on pre-existing genes. Well, wait a minute. Pre-existing genes are full of genetic information. Where did that come from? He doesn't say, nor does he say where the information came from in the gene regulatory networks, nor does he say where the information would have needed to come from in, to rewire those networks. Because you rewire a network, you need new code. So he presupposes three unexplained sources of information in order to explain the origin of the information needed to build the Cambrian animals. That's, that's, a, that's a, 
a freshman philosophy logic error. It's, just, it's called begging the question. Okay? So I was thrilled with this critique because this is a very, a, a very serious senior person in evolutionary biology, and this seemed to be the best that they could do. Um, so I'll leave it there for Q&A discussion, and I really thank you for your attention. It's a challenging subject. I want to be uh, mindful of time, so if, if you need to uh, sneak out, um, please do. But we have about 15 minutes for questions, and what we're going to do is we've got two mics here. So if you have a question, uh, just come, be, um, come behind the mic, and um, I'll recognize you. <laughs> Sir. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Uh, there absolutely are, and I sort of embedded that point in a, uh, I simplified the explanation. That's a very perceptive question. We I mean, can go back to the slide with my colleague, Doug Axe. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay, he's asking if, unlike a bike lock, where there's only one combination that will produce a functional outcome, namely opening the lock, isn't it the case with proteins and DNA molecules that there may be multiple possible arrangements that will perform multiple functions, albeit embedded in a much larger set of possibilities? And the answer to that question is yes. And that was the key question that was left unanswered back in 1967 when all those math physics guys got together with the biologists at the Wistar Institute. Okay? And the key question then is, is the question that I, I kind of, I had to simplify the explanation and skate over this a little bit because it gets a little too detailed. But the key question is, um, how rare or common are the functional combinations in relationship to all the non-functional combinations? Because that ratio is then going to give you a measure of the difficulty of the search problem. Okay? And what Axe did was he did a method of what's called um, site-directed mutagenesis, where he sampled combinations to see what the ratio of functional to non-functional combinations in a gene or a protein is. And there are more, there are, there's more than one combination represented. There's vastly more combinations that are functional, but they are still dwarfed in comparison to the number of, of uh, non-functional combinations such that the ratio is um, 1 over 10 to 77. So in other words, he was asking, for every one of these proteins that fold up into a functional shape, how many chains are there that don't do anything at all, that won't even fold. And the ratio is 1 over 10 to the 77. And that's the number I was using in developing the argument. So you're right, and we've taken that, that fact of biology, which is different than the bike lock, into account in making these assessments. Thank you. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Yeah. Hi. Can you hear, can everyone hear me? You're coming to loud and clear. Good. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, that was incredible. And second, I want to go back to when you were talking about uh, Professor Chen, and you said that he flipped the tree of life on its head, I actually envisioned like the reversal almost of evolution, and almost as if there, it, it sounded like, I don't know if this is what you intended, but you were describing um, a much more complex, diversified 
uh, body of ancestors than what it grew to become. Is that what you meant to? Describe? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little. Just, your hand is limited in what it can convey there, <laughs> right? But um, there's this. This in some ways pertains to the question of the pattern that we see in the. Well, it is the pattern in the fossil record, but it's a question of biological history. Is the history of life best represented as a branching tree where all the branches are connected back to this single form of life? Or is the history of life best represented as maybe um, a set of parallel lines like a lawn? Or maybe, and this is what I think, uh, something more like an orchard where there is limited variability within the, um, the genetic endowments of, of an organism. So um, those of us who are in favor of intelligent design don't deny that there are real evolutionary processes that take place. But the question is whether the evolutionary mechanisms have limited or unlimited creativity. And our argument would be that they have limited creativity within the, the, um, the, the amount, the, 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 there's creativity to be expressed that is expressing pre-existing genetic information. So however much information was there will determine how much variability is allowable. Um, and so what I think you, you actually see in the history of life is, is um, these, the sudden appearance of these major groups, and within those major groups there's, there is some variability and microevolutionary change, and each group may have a different amount depending on what its original genetic endowments were. So does, does that help at all? It or? does. Okay. It helps a lot. Thank you. Um, I liked the analogy of an orchard, actually. So the last problem, I guess, you presented of genes and what are they, would you say that that is kind of... Oh my goodness, the, yeah. Like, the, like a gene is the root, I guess you could say, of each individual tree in an orchard. And that well, yeah, you would say information of some kind. It gets, it gets, the story gets even more complicated because we're discovering, and this is, this is really so cool and I didn't get the chance to talk about it, but we're discovering that the information you need to build an animal is not solely um, in the genes or even the gene regulatory networks. There's a higher level of information um, in cells and in animals that... Um, well, let's put it this way. Information is stored hierarchically. There's information that turns on other information that turns on other information. And some of that is not stored in DNA. It's called epigenetic, beyond the gene information. And it's a big cutting edge area of research in developmental biology. It represents another huge challenge to neo-Darwinism because neo-Darwinism wants to say all the new form, biological form, is produced by the random mutations in the DNA molecule. But we now know that that building animals requires information beyond DNA as well as in DNA. So what that means is you could mutate DNA indefinitely till the cows come home, and you might, in the best case, if you could overwhelm the, overcome the odds I was talking about, you might get lucky and build a new protein. But you would never build a whole animal because animals are built as proteins are arranged into biosynthetic pathways, pathways that char characterize distinct cell types. Cell types have to be arranged into tissues and, or in, and, or, and tissues and cell types into organs, organs and tissues into body plants. And the information for all those higher forms of organization is not contained in DNA. So you could mutate DNA as much as you want and you'll never build a new form of animal life. And that's another reason that lots and lots of uh, evolutionary biologists are realizing they've got to jettison neo-Darwinism. It's just the wrong tool for the job. So it's another really cool area of research. And we don't know all the areas, or we don't know where all this other information is stored, but we know some of the sources, and we, we can uh, um, certify that, that something more than just DNA information is needed to build animals. You've got to arrange the proteins into all those higher parts. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the good questions. 
So at one point in your lecture, you mentioned that your theory was neutral on the issue of the age of the Earth, but you also referenced timelines throughout it that seem to assume an old Earth, like the trillions and trillions of years old right. uh, model of creation. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit. Sure. Um, the, the case for ID is, is basically um, intelligent, the opposite of intelligent design is not young earth creationism or old earth creationism. You could be one or the other of those things and also be for intelligent design, okay? Um, we, we set up the, 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 we framed the issue in the ID community around a key claim that, that, um, that Darwinian biology has made since, since Darwin himself, and that is that the appearance of design in living organisms is just an appearance. It's an illusion produced by an undirected, unguided uh, mechanism known as natural selection acting on random variations. So Richard Dawkins in page one of The Blind Watchmaker says, great title by the way, totally captures his viewpoint. He says, the biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, where the key word is appearance or illusion. Intelligent design is challenging that, okay? It's saying, um, no, we don't think that the appearance of design is an illusion. We think it's real, and we think you can tell by examining the evidence in light of our knowledge of cause and effect, okay? So there are a number of phenomena in living systems and in the, indeed the universe that are, that, get, that are suggestive of design, and the question invariably comes down to this. Do undirected mechanisms or intelligent causes better explain those phenomena? That's, that's an, a form of analysis that you can engage in without having to settle the, 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 the age of the earth question, okay? Now, having said that, I would say most of the ID proponents are old earth, but we have a number of prominent ones who are young earth, okay? And what we have sort of steadfastly attempted to do, partly because this issue has become so darn toxic in the Christian world, is to get people to focus on the major issue of whether or not there's evidence of design and creation, whether you can tell from the science, um, that would be roughly, would roughly map to Paul's teaching in Romans 1, uh, where he says, from the things that are made, the unseen qualities of the Creator are clearly known. And then the, the tertiary issue is how long ago did that creation or infusions of design, how long ago did that take place? And we would like that conversation to take place on a little more amicable, amicable, amicable basis than it has done in the past. I think it's become a toxic issue in the church. And if you'd like to know my personal view I'll tell you, but I don't know that it's that important. So, um, it's, it, but it, it's something that hangs a lot of people up. Yeah. Gotcha. That helps okay. a lot. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You go ahead, ma'am. Yes, um, I've been following uh, Discovery Institute since uh, Unlocking the Mystery of Life came Oh, out thank you. Yeah. Way, way back. And it's been really helpful to show people because it's you know, the anim uh, animation and graphics are really helpful to show the complexity of what's going on. Um, I have your signature in the cell, and I I've marked it up. I've got stuff on every single page. But that is really difficult to explain to the average person, and I'm wondering when you're going to sort of make the schoolhouse rock version of this <laughs> so that the average individual, especially school kids, who, you know, sometimes are given a... Well, and yeah, indoctrination great, great. can at least have a concept of it. Maybe not be able to argue it, but at least understand the concepts of it. Well, as you might imagine, uh, what was it? Aristotle in his rhetoric, you know, said that there's 
different ways of communicating to different, to different audiences. And uh, we do bear a responsibility of, or a need to, to communicate this at different levels. I've, I've been involved in everything from talk radio interviews where you have to distill the information argument before the music finishes, you know, the, the, the music starts to come up from the break and you know, to, so, you know, you can say it as quickly as um, DNA contains digital information. We know Bill, Bill Gates, uh, well, one of the things I use on the radio is the Bill Gates quote, you know, DNA um, is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever written. We know from experience that software always comes from a programmer, and we know, therefore, so therefore, we may be looking at evidence of a master programmer for life when we look at the code in the DNA. There's a nice little cartoon book that we've put together uh, called What's Darwin Got to Do With It, which might be just what you're looking for. It's written by um, Bob Newman, uh, John Weister, and Jonathan Moneymaker, and Jonathan Moneymaker's wife, uh, who happens to be my sister-in-law, is the cartoonist, and it's, it's quite good, and, but we do need more materials of that store. We also have some nice high school level uh, textbooks and supplementary texts that you might, might dip into that would be helpful, but the, the cartoon book is, I think, good for fifth, sixth grade and, and up, so I enjoy it. <laughs> well, um, in reading your book, the, or the signature in the cell, I don't have the new one, but um, one of the most, I mean, I come from a science -y background, astrophysics major, total nerd, um, I, I had an understanding, I thought, of DNA, and then when I got to reading your book, the thing that was most powerful to me is that there's no real reason why these three genetic letters go with this amino acid. You know, why does this mean this? The code is totally chemically arbitrary, which means you cannot explain it on the basis of chemical attraction, chemical reaction, or chemical affinity which means you're dealing with a true informational system because in all informational systems, there's an arbitrary assignment of meaning and symbol repre and, and representation. And this is the fascinating thing that Crick realized, not only about the digital characters that make up the, gen the genetic text, but about the code itself. There is no underlying chemistry that dictates the, the information and the code that is responsible for, for converting or translating the information. And what is fascinating to me is that, that Crick was in World War II a code breaker. <laughs> and then after the war, coming out of physics, he cracked the ultimate code, the code of life. And that was one of his key insights. And another great scientist who contributed to that, maybe even more than Crick on this point, is Michael Polanyi. He wrote a really important paper in 1968 in science called Life's Irreducible Structure and another called uh, Life Transcending Physics and Chemistry. And it's really profound when you realize that what DNA is doing is, is something that transcends chemistry. It's, it, it is a true information storage system, and the information is used to produce something using a completely chemically arbitrary code, which is um, not explainable by the underlying laws of physics and chemistry. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's right. Or thank you. And uh, yeah, go ahead. I think this will be the last question. Uh, you mentioned big issue for a lot of these other scientists is the origin of the information that would be necessary to have all this happen. Um, and the one guy that just said he doesn't like to think about it, but have any other scientists thought of or proposed another um, way that information came to be? Or yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is what, what, what a lot of what I do in the books. If I'm using this method of inference to the best explanation or method of multiple competing hypotheses, uh, to, to use that method effectively, you have to evaluate 
the other competing hypotheses. So my books have tended to be kind of fat and they've run long because of the nature of the, the, the method that I'm using to come to my conclusions. So if you get into them, um, I, I kind of, in, in, the, in the biological evolution debate, the, most of the propo I, I discussed the main proposals tonight, the mutation selection one being the, 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 the biggest, but there are others that I didn't get to discuss, like self-organizational laws, uh, the neutral theory of evolution. So to, to do the subject full justice, you need to read the other alternative explanations that have been proposed, and then read my critique. The, I'm giving you the short story version to tell you that each of those models has also failed in precisely the same place that they've been unable to account for the origin of information. They either don't address the problem or they beg the question. And it's pretty obvious. Once you can, if you, you I, I hope you can, usually readers can follow my biological exposition. Once you understand what they're doing, it's not that hard to see why they have failed to answer that information problem. That's good. Does anyone, I know, you know that you said that was last, but does anyone want to talk about theistic evolution? Have people been curious about that? If you do, I, I'd love to discuss that topic because it, it's within the Christian world, it's as, it's as controversial as the whole uh, issue of the age of the earth. It's the other, in a sense, if you've got, it's not like the political spectrum, but roughly you've got the creationists on the right and the, and the theistic evolutionists on the left. And, and um, anyway, one just quick point on that is that the, the crucial issue there goes back to the same issue of, well, what do we, what do we mean by evolution? What, what, what is the definition of evolution? Do we mean just change over time in which case, God can certainly cause change over time. There's, that, there's nothing incoherent about being that kind of theistic evolutionist. He can certainly cause, uh, the, uh, but the, the, the key claim of Darwinism is that the change that we see is, is completely undirected and unguided. Okay, that's why you have the appearance of design, but it's only an appearance. It's only an appearance because the mechanism that produced the appearance was an unguided, undirected mechanism. And that's problematic because if you say God directs an undirected process, well, that's like saying, Charlie, what was your illustration today? It's like having a, a yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a sightless gun or a, right, yeah. it, God cannot, even God can't direct an undirected process. That's an oxymoron, okay? The other alternative is that God isn't directing the undirected process and that you have something then like deism where the, where the sovereignty of God is diminished because he's not in any way active in the creation. And I could unpack that dilemma in a lot more detail, but there's one, one of the things we've been calling for with our friends in the theistic evolutionist camp is to clarify what they mean by evolution. Do they mean a directed or an undirected process? If it's directed, that's a form of ID. We have no problem with that, but they seem to have a problem with the theory of intelligent design and have made that clear. If it's undirected, then it's hard to distinguish that from deism, and in which case I think there's a deep theological problem. So, some key issues to be thinking about as well, and I'll stop and get off the stage. Thanks. I think Dr. Meyer will be here yeah. for some minutes afterwards if you have questions, but please join me again in thanking him for yeah. this lecture.